So the tui bird, oh my gosh, they have this beautiful white throttle on their neck and they make the most glorious sound. And once you hear one, you'll never forget it. There'll be a little bit about the TUI inside on an interpretive panel in your room. We really believe that every act of design and construction can actually make the world a better place. Even the smallest change, when done by a lot of people, can add up to be big change. You don't have to create a Headwaters net positive energy project. I mean, you can do something within your own home, you can do something within the business that you work in, and all of that is additive. I'm really excited to go and show everyone what you've built. Among Queenstown Lake's many innovations in sustainable travel, Headwaters Eco Lodge is one business that rises to the top. Today, we're bringing you on a special tour through the lodge's climate-conscious solutions that are delighting visitors and inspiring the region to reach carbon zero by 2030. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. I'm David Archer, and this is Travel Beyond. Debbie Brainerd and her husband Paul opened Headwaters Eco Lodge in 2018 as a prime example of sustainable solutions in travel. The lodge is the first ever accommodation facility designed and certified to the stringent standards of the Living Building Challenge. The lodge uses less water and energy than other accommodations. Reclaimed and non-toxic materials are apparent throughout the design, and the lodge even generates its own solar electricity, selling the surplus back into the power grid. And some travel leaders in the area might also think of the lodge as the room where it happened. It's the place where the idea of committing the visitor economy to reaching carbon zero by 2030 was first introduced to the community. Following that meeting, the goal was adopted as a key focus of the region's destination management plan released in 2023 called Travel to a Thriving Future, which the Destination Think team played a lead role in developing. This is a big ambition, so you might wonder what actions are behind it. And over the next series of episodes, we're going to bring you some of the Queenstown Lakes region's most exciting solutions in sustainability and the people whose travel projects are making those dreams come true. Today, Debbie Brainerd takes Rodney Payne and some other team members on a tour to give us a peek behind the curtain into those solutions and others. Here we go. I'm really excited for the tour and I, I want to ask you lots of questions about this because I think that you, what you've done here has shown people in the district what's possible. And I think we've been talking a lot about possibilities to try and unpack what's happened here. And the fear of change or the fear of doing things differently is often quickly overcome if you can just show people the way. Right. And, and that sort of leadership. Right. So let's, let's go have a look and, and you can talk to us a little bit about that as we do. Great, yeah. thank you. So this is the entrance to our reception desk for Camp Glenorchy or the Headwaters Lodge at Camp Glenorchy. We've used a lot of local talent, craftspeople, artists, to create many installations here that are part of what we consider to be the, the charm of being in a small community like this. So on the right, or on my right here, we've got this beautiful installation by Corinne and Tor 
um, who are local artists here in town, they have a, a glass business in their art studios. And then as you see on this pathway here, this is a stone mosaic pathway that was done by Jeffrey Bale, who is an internationally recognized landscape artist. He created this from all the rocks in the Dart and the Reese River, which are just behind us coming around Mount Alfred on each side. And he cut them in half and then installed them to create what we call the Braided River Pathway. Mm, it smells like, smells like coffee in here. Smells so good. The good news is this is the time of day when no one's here because they're out hiking. Yeah. So if you come into our dining room, the whole idea here is to be able to have a community experience. And so we've set it up so that the dining, you can either choose to be by yourself at your own table, or you can join others who are traveling. Because we find that when we travel, we love meeting people from other parts of the world or the locals, which we have a lot of locals who come here for dinner as well. And then the art that we've selected for in our dining room is a combination of New Zealand artists, like for example, this art on my left was created from old fence posts off a farm on the North Island. Debbie, the materials that have been used to construct the lodge. Yeah, let's tell us about, about those. those. Yeah. yeah. So as you look around all our spaces in what we call this homestead building, the walls are all quite different and none of them match. And that's because when we were building the project, uh, or actually before we were building, we had several farmers call us and say, I'm taking down an old wool shed and I heard that you want to use reclaimed timber. So we went over to three different wool sheds that were being taken down, brought back the timber and then just kept it on site for a couple years while we got ready to build. So then when we finally got to this space, we looked at like 30 piles of different kinds of wood, and then we just had a playtime deciding what's going to go where. So there was no really rhyme or reason other than we just used our intuition at which walls got which wood and then how those would relate to each other. And I think it turned out quite lovely because it is quite quirky and fun. So the artwork in here has a bit of a uh, educational opportunity because what we've done is we've framed two pieces on this wall that tell a bit of the story. So over here, when we ask people to visit um, what we call the Welcome to Camp Glenorchy sign, this shows the power that's generated from our solar or photovoltaic panels, which run the entire operation here. And we do have a lot of batteries, so we're able to conserve during the day and then use that power at night. And then we also highlight a lot of the aspects of what has allowed us to become a net positive energy site. So we have um, constructed the cabins with SIP panels, which if you're familiar with those, they're highly insulated. And we've also used a lot of recycled materials that have allowed us to give the character to the place so it doesn't look so contemporary that it feels cold and austere. The other piece I would just point out on this sign is that it talks about how we use 50% less water than traditional hotels or accommodations. And primarily that's due to all the conservation taps that are here, but we're also 
using composting toilets, which if you know anything about toilets, they use a lot of water. So the composting toilets, I think, allow us to save about 300,000 gallons of water a year. It's, there's a, a number somewhere, but it's very high. So if we walk back into, we call this the green stone room. This is like our living room. A lot of people will sit in here in the evening, have a glass of wine before dinner, and just talk about the day's activities. And partly this room was designed because our cabin rooms are quite small as a way to hopefully push people out into a community area so they can meet other people who are visiting. So this room definitely brings back memories for me because a few months ago this is where we announced the ambition to see if the whole district would go carbon zero by 2030. And it was, it was, it was quite nerve-wracking. Mm. And I think for all of the people involved because there's a spectrum of you know comfort with change and doing something bold and I personally didn't think that it was going to see the light of day, right? I thought it was going to get watered down and meet resistance because typically in a situation like that, there's, there's, it only takes one person with a loud voice to shut something ambitious down. Absolutely. Never found that roadblock. And that, wow. that, that's kind of why we're back here, right? Is because there's a lot of momentum that's been catalyzed. And I think I remember this was our last presentation in the week. We'd been all through Queenstown, Wanaka, and then we came out and did the last presentation here and then spent the weekend here. And it, we, we were really riding on some excitement. And I think in every meeting we'd had goosebumps, right? Because we did all the boring parts of the presentation. And then we got to the, the sort of clear, bold ambition at the end that was just let's decarbonize first on the path to understanding limits and optimal levels of you know balance. At that point, after 20 minutes of listening to me talk, by the time we got to the part where the ambition was on the slide, everybody in the room paid attention and felt something. Uncomfortable, excited, nervous. Mm -hmm. And that's really unique in community planning that you've got everyone's attention, right? Because the biggest risk to community planning is just apathy and that nothing changes. Yeah. And I think one of the things that happened here in this room is we, we sort of catalyzed people's engagement in community building in a much more widespread way. And that was, that was pretty powerful. I bet. Well, and really what you describe, we experienced in the beginning of our project because there's always going to be people who have fear about change, right? So I think that the opportunity for us was, well, how can we build something that feels like it can integrate and become a part of the community without standing out like perhaps some of the buildings in Queenstown do uh, now. And the opportunity in building something like this was showing what we believe is a model of a lot of pieces where someone can come and learn about it can be water conservation, it can be power production, it can be how to build sustainably with what they call um, lack of red list materials or high quality non-off-gassing materials and that they can take that back into their home or they can take it into their workplace because there's people creating new buildings wherever we go right now. So it was really this opportunity of showcasing 
knowing that everyone who comes here will probably take at least one thing away with them. What was the driving motivation behind wanting to have a low environmental impact and be net energy positive? Where did, where did that inspiration come from? So after we ended up finding out we were the proud new owners of a campground, uh, what we learned was that 60% of the campgrounds in this country and in many places had gone out of business in the last 10 years. And that's because they're seasonal, it's because the property rates have increased, it's because labor is challenging when you have a business that only produces revenues three months a year. So we started looking at the idea of how do we build insulated net positive energy that could run off the grid and then be viable as a business through winter. And so that led us down this path of net positive energy. It led us to the living building challenge, which as you see on the wall is a piece of art for us. And we got certified through LBC, through the energy pedal, through the water pedal, and through the beauty pedal, because we really believe that every act of design and construction can actually make the world a better place. So the path towards green architecture and sustainable design was really one that just we took naturally after we purchased because we thought, well, if we're going to do the right thing, how do we build it in a way that gives something back? So this idea of a model was really important. When you began this project, was there anything else like it around here? Was there, was there anything that you sort of looked at from an accommodation perspective or a tourism perspective and said, you know, uh, that, that's a trend or, or were you pioneering? So when we began the project, we personally had no experience in accommodation from a tourism perspective, right? And so the journey for us was really about learning. And so we visited other places and we found that no one was doing anything like this. And it was mostly because most of the accommodation in the world is so financially based on the outcomes of profitability. And this particular place, knowing that we would only have four cabins to start with, is probably a bit of a disaster to most general managers because you need more like 20 to 24 to have a viable business. So for us, our focus was just, okay, so the financials are part of it, the environment's part of it, and the community's part of it. And most people talk about that as a triple bottom line business. So that is really where we started. Where did the name Headwaters come from? The name Headwaters came from a community focus group that we did, because in the beginning we wanted to talk to a lot of locals. And one of the locals who ran the Reese Valley Sheep Station for many years, she came up with the idea at one of our community focus groups, because we started with the name the Glenarchy Marketplace, and a lot of people didn't care for the name, so we asked them, okay, what do you want to name us? So um, it was Iris Scott who came up with the headwaters. And that's because if you remember the photo that we just looked at, all the braided rivers come down from around the Mount Alfred, which is that Dart and Reese uh, River, and they flow into Lake Wakatipu. And that is the headwaters. Can you tell me about this interesting structure up on yeah, the roof? Yeah, so those are solar tubes, and there is a water glycol mix in them, and that produces energy. So it does everything from produce hot water for your showers to 
produce uh, temperature changes in our solar system down in the basement, which of course can then provide heat and electricity. So those are on every roof. And in complementation to that, you'll see behind this building is a big solar installation of photovoltaic panels, which I think we have about 370 panels in, and that runs this entire site. And the, the solar panels, are they also connected to the grid or are you off grid? We are connected to the grid. So if we're producing more power than we're using, which we do a lot, then we do sell it back. Although in this country, what they give you for what you sell it back for is quite different than in the US. So the flax just bloomed a couple weeks ago so you can see these seed pods opening up. And you'll probably notice, uh, since your cabin is called the mountain flax cabin, that there's a carving on the front of every cabin. And these were done by someone here in New Zealand that works on movie sets. Come on in, this is one of my favorite rooms. And you'll see that um, everything in here is a bit quirky. Nothing really matches. There's a few old pieces of furniture. There's new, what we call fine linens on the bed. And then you'll find some old pieces of art with some contemporary photographs. We call this the mud room. So you can actually come in. A lot of people come in from outside, leave their hiking boots in here. But so you have two entrances into your room. And this uh, space has one of these amazing solar tubes. These are made in Australia and they use refractory light. It's all mirrored inside. And if you look at this, even on a cloudy day, there's still light coming in and there's no electricity in there. That's all natural. So if there's a family staying in here, there's another room that you can end up putting a child or a family member in and then they can share the bathroom. So what we've done is we've set this up so that the bathroom has three separate areas. You've got the sink, you've got the shower with a door, and then you've got our famous composting toilet, which we'll go into and you can take a look at. You know, people are always afraid that the composting toilet's going to smell, but if you come in here, you'll see that they don't. Um, and if you lift this up, a fan comes on, and then air is pulled down because there's a solar fan. The air is pulled down and then it goes out. So what's the benefit of a composting toilet? How does that add to the total uh, vision of this place? Well, if you think about the world and our water use, a lot of people are concerned about minimizing water use. So you'll find taps and shower heads are being redesigned. And with toilets, they probably use most of our water in our homes. Uh, and if you look at how much we use per flush, you'll see with this particular project and you look at a, an annual use of water, I think these composting toilets save us about 300,000 gallons. So you can see that that one change is actually a conservation change that has a huge ripple effect. And do you think of the compost as a natural result? Is it? Absolutely. I mean, you can put this compost at the end of 18 months. You can't tell what it is. It's actually, it can go out into any garden or farming operation. We don't put it in our garden beds here, mostly because there's a lot of food growing on. 
but it can go into any garden or any farming operation. Well, standing in a composting toilet with you is a first for me. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So there is another one of the solar tubes in the shower. In this particular shower, we've just recycled some old Italian tiles with some tiles out of Auckland that are made sustainably in this country, just to give it a bit of fun and character. But again, there's no electricity on in there, so you see what happens with just the prisms in that internal place of the refractory light. And I notice a timer next to my shower here. Can you tell me about the timer? Yeah, so Rodney, when you take a shower, you'll have the opportunity to learning about what it's like to have a time shower, which is seven minutes. Now, most people that hear that there's a time shower immediately have all this fear that they're not gonna have enough time or enough water. But everyone who takes a shower here usually comes to us afterwards and says, gosh, I realize there's plenty of time to wash my hair and rinse it with seven minute shower. So hopefully you'll feel that same way. I feel a little bit like I'm back living with my mom in, uh, in country Australia and, and having to conserve water. So I think I, I'm gonna be okay with it. But uh, I, I really do love the different elements that you've incorporated that is so confident and teaching people subtly. Mm, yeah, well, even that solar tube, I think most people go home and put one of those over their kitchen sink because they like the light where they're cooking, but we've put them here in the bathrooms, not into the rooms, because we like the fact that at night we, we can do a blackout inside the rooms. Yeah. So Rodney, now we'll take you over to the solar garden where we've got about oh, 376 photovoltaic panels that produce energy for all 14 cabins and for a homestead building. And there now are people looking at this as a model for what can happen in small communities. And even Glenorchy is looking at that idea of how could it, being so far, almost an hour from a town or a city, be off the grid because getting power up the road is sometimes a little tricky because there'll be a flood or there'll be a tree that goes down and, and takes out the power. I think what you mentioned there about showing people the way or showing people what you can do is really inspiring. You mentioned that the city of Glenorchy is looking at this as a potential test case or an example of what's possible. Do you think that you've had that effect on, on the community? Yeah, so there's a community down the road called Wayuna Preserve and there's actually a few owners there right now that are looking at the idea of how would they do a solar installation to take all those homes off the grid and be a model for that uh, sustainable design from, a, from an energy perspective. Doing things that have never been done before seems to be a common theme in the conversations we're having down here. Yeah, well, that's the quirkiness of it. And that's the idea of how do you just trust that what you're working on will unfold in a way you don't have to micromanage everything and people and ideas show up. I got the chance to interview the, the person in government responsible for tourism in Bhutan recently. Mm. And I haven't been to Bhutan but I really, really want to go from the values perspective and, and seeing the future, right? I, I kind of want to peer into the future. And I think that was one of the most inspiring hours of my life 
talking to Damcho because of how deeply held the values of the country are. Right. And one of the things that he said that really stuck with me was, I, I asked the question, what would happen if, if Bhutan did what the rest of the world did and just had open borders and as many tourists as, as wanted could come? Yeah. And we try to get as many as possible without any thought to that. And he said, well, the residents would be really unhappy because they'd lose their home and the tourists wouldn't get to see Bhutan. They'd just see other tourists. And it made me realize that there's very few trips I've done in my life where I haven't been just with other tourists. Right. 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 And I think that's a really interesting concept to think about. Yeah. But. Well, I have been to Bhutan. I'm very blessed. I've been a lot of places. And I would tell you that my experience there, because I was in the mountains a lot and doing some tracks, but I was also in a lot of farmers' homes, having dinner with local Amazing. people, right? And the thing that you realize about that particular country, well, there's a lot, actually, that we could learn from, but the simplicity of life, yeah. you know, that they have is, is really lovely. Mm -hmm. The thing that I remember most was when we planned to go there, we had to apply mm -hmm. for our visa we paid a very big landing fee, and then we paid a daily fee for being in the country. And I've often thought New Zealand should do that. Mm -hmm. Like you fly into Auckland, or whether you're flying into Christchurch, you pay a very big landing fee, and then you pay an amount per day to be in the country. And what I learned is that all that money was going to preserve their culture and their farming. Mm -hmm. When you're there, they manage the numbers and they also manage in some ways to keep the culture by subsidizing that with the tourism dollars that come in. So that's an interesting thing. You mentioned the triple bottom line. One of the things that I've been trying to do recently is find language to get business people excited about different types of growth, right? Because I think the word degrowth it doesn't have a good brand is a concept that talks a lot about needing to grow in different ways right and the, the word probably doesn't do it justice because it's not very inspiring to mm -hmm. to take a step backwards right. but i've been thinking a lot about the concept of the bottom line for communities and the triple bottom line is something you referenced commonly known in business but i don't think that in community planning or in destination management we think enough about all of the different externalities of tourism. Mm -hmm. And we've almost done the industry a, a disservice by just focusing on getting more and more and more people mm -hmm. and not thinking about how much of that money is staying in the community right. and what are the costs of hosting visitors on infrastructure, on the, the resources that we have and, and on people's lives and you know, forcing people out of the community and on the environment. And I think recently, you know, in the past few years, I've had a growing consciousness around the climate impact of tourism. And as I start speaking to people about it, I've grown more and more concerned that I, I don't think people are really connecting how bad tourism can be for the climate as, you know, on an individual level. Absolutely. Was climate a big motivator for you in building this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think climate is 
on some level on many of our minds. And I mean, I even think about it when I go back to Seattle, I think, oh, do I really need, can I, could I find a way to not get on a plane mm -hmm. for any reason, right? Whether it's just flying up to Auckland to see friends or go to a doctor's appointment or if it's um, going back to the States. I think that flying, of course, with our carbon footprint, everybody looks at that. And um, we're all thinking about global warming. And at the same time, it's a complex problem. So you think about, well, what piece can I work on? And so I try to think about, well, how can I fly less? How can I be more conscious about how many times I get in my car versus how many times I walk to where I need to go? And even with our home, we tried to build a small home here so it didn't have a big footprint and wasn't going to use a lot of energy to keep it going. But I mean, your, your conversation about global warming and our carbon footprint is on some level the opportunity when you get get to invest in a project so, such as ours how do you just showcase all the pieces that if you were to make small changes in your life whether that be your personal life or your professional in, in a commercial situation that you can have some kind of reduction in power or water usage and if we can all do a little bit I find that that sum can be quite powerful. And there's always the dichotomy between whether this is a problem that requires individual action or whether it requires systemic change. And I think we often get caught in a debate between those two things and the answer is that it needs both because individual actions like what you've built here serve as a inspiration for others. Absolutely. And that kind of leadership is really powerful. But the sum of individual actions can also cause pressure bottom up, which is, I think, one of the things that's happened here. And then you've got a, a political class that's paying attention to what the constituents want. And when you have the bottom up and the top down together, the magic can really happen. Absolutely. I feel like every second business I look at here is an environmental restoration company masquerading as a tourism business. And I feel like that consciousness around community and environment is, is, is really prevalent as a high proportion of the population that lives here. And it's a really fascinating thing to see because if you take a model like Bhutan and learn from, from some of the best bits of it, you know, what, what would it look like to retrofit that and apply that to you know, a community or a, a small country? So now we're going to take you into what we call the back 40. And it's a bit of a construction project, which is in the very back. You know, we've got about five acres total here. So we're going to walk through a bit of a mess. And when we get to the very back, which will only take us maybe two minutes, you'll see we're building a kitchen garden that will have a winterized greenhouse and that winterized greenhouse will produce food for our kitchens both at the lodge and at Mrs. Woolley's throughout the year. Let's go. Okay. 
I've always wanted to see a deep winter greenhouse. I've read a lot about them and I'm excited have. to go see it. Well, the idea of this, which was designed in Canada because they have those really big winters up north in Canada. And although our winters maybe aren't as severe as northern Canada, we do get some big winds here and we, we can get some pretty big drops in temperature. So as we go down this area um, into the lower elevation, you'll see there's a lot of projects that are still a work in progress. There's a potting shed being built out of an old container that we had, and they're just putting a roof on it so we have some outdoor space to work out of the sun. Let's go see the new greenhouse. Yeah, so it's not finished yet. They don't have any of the structures in yet. Yeah. But you can just see that the external area they've just completed. So they'll end up putting in a racking system and a watering system in here sometime probably in the next few months. So right now what happens is when it gets too hot there's a thermometer inside. These windows automatically open and then there's a fan that brings the air up and out. So it's this pathway of a natural cooling system. How many months of the year will you be too cold to grow here? Is it three uh, or four? You know, our growing season here probably starts around October. Yeah. And it goes to probably about, oh, end of April, it's maybe early season. May. Yeah, it's, it's really actually pretty good considering you're in the what is it, 3,000 feet up in the mountains. Yeah. But you can see all these trees were just gifted to us just a couple months ago, and they love the sun here. It's hard to believe. They were just little sticks. Oh, wow. And this is how much they've grown in just a couple months. I think it's ex extraordinary what two months of growth can yeah, do Yeah, it's here. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. What, a, yeah. what an amazing compound. Yeah. Well, thank you for all your time. Yeah, and thank you so much for showing us around today. And more so, thank you for creating a little bit of inspiration here mm. because I think what you've done has shown people what's possible and helped to create the foundation uh, for the, the massive ambition that's been catalyzed. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Rodney, for coming and um, telling a part of this story because actually I hope that, and my husband does too, that some piece of this project will inspire others to do something within their communities as well. This has been Travel Beyond presented by Destination Think, and you just visited Headwaters Eco Lodge at Camp Glenorchy with Debbie Brainerd and Rodney Payne. We'll include links to more resources on the blog for this episode at destinationthink.com. My co-producer is Sarah Raymond Dubois. This episode has been created and has theme music composed by me, David Archer. I'm recording from Haida Gwaii, Canada, which is the territory of the Haida Nation. Lindsay Payne and Annika Rautiola provided production support. We would like to thank Destination Queenstown, Lake Wanaka Tourism, and Queenstown Lakes District Council for their participation in this series and for their trust in Destination Think throughout this project. You can help more people find the show by subscribing to future episodes and by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're actively looking for the best examples of efforts to regenerate economies, communities, and ecosystems, so be sure to reach out if you have a story to share with us. And we'll see you next time.